Uh, this morning we come um, together to worship the Lord, uh, and I'm here. My name is Clay Hicks. I'm one of the uh, elders for Redeemer. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, um, our pastor is away this morning on a well-deserved couple of days off with his family, and so <clears throat> I am the humble stand-in. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. The big thing that we want to focus on this morning, obviously, is honoring Christ. And uh, it was interesting uh, that I, I texted Katie and Paul yesterday to ask what the songs would be. And uh, all four songs solely focused on, on our, our Savior, Christ Jesus. Um, which is interesting because today, uh, and I told her that the Spirit continues to move because today the focus is on the exclusivity of Christ. So, this particular um, sermon, talk, whatever, you, I feel weird saying sermon. Uh, Vic says it all the time. I, I don't ever say it. Um, comes out of the time that we spent in Rwanda uh, a number of uh, weeks back. And uh, while we were there, we spoke on what are described as the five solas of the Reformation. And those five pillars uh, that founded the Reformation. And they are through uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And so each of us broke different teachings up. Uh, Vic had grace and faith. Rodney had scripture alone, and I had Christ and glory alone. And so this morning comes out of that more extended uh, teaching time. And so hopefully we'll be able to, to keep it to a manageable time. But uh, the, as you can imagine, this particular topic, uh, we, can, we could be here all day. But we want to thank God for the uh, beautiful morning. It's finally fall, hopefully. I know there may be a little turn back to warmth, but uh, this, is, this is my season. This is it. So out of this, what we began to see in, in Rwanda were people, whether we were out in the villages on the side of a mountain or we were in town, uh, the people in the villages sitting on little rinky-dink chairs that I would never dare put my weight on, uh, but they were sitting there intently staring and listening, not to me speak, who cares if I speak, they wanted to hear about their Savior. They wanted to hear about their King. And they, well, they were Bibles open, Bibles that were dirty and shredded and all these different things from use. And this is what they sought. This is what they wanted. So out of that um, comes an interest on their part to hear true teaching. Uh, biblical teaching because they unlike or excuse me like America Africa is awash with unbiblical teaching whether it be the prosperity gospel or a salvation by works for various different denominations there and they desired to hear the the real meat of the word so this morning will be a little bit different we're not going to be doing quite the same as as Pastor Vic does where it's expositional verse by verse uh, in one book. It's going to be a little bit more topical. Like I said, we're going to be speaking on uh, the exclusivity of Christ uh, or a broader term, uh, sola Christus, right? Christ alone. And so our base text this morning 
will be Acts chapter 4, 7 through, through 12. And I'll give you time to turn to it, but while we're turning to it, a uh, little, little context. So in chapter 3, Peter had commanded a lame man uh, to get up and walk in front of everyone. And this was a short time after the day of Pentecost. And subsequent to that, Peter and John uh, were ministering together. They were teaching and preaching the people of Christ, or people about Christ, and their part in the crucifixion. Leaders of the temple arrested uh, both Peter and John because of the disturbance that, uh, they, that, were, that was caused by their teaching. And the next day, they were brought before the leaders of the temple. And so this is where we pick up in chapter 4. And so if you would, as is our custom, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 7. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we're being seated and uh, moving on here, uh, the first thing I want to point out in this particular scripture, <clears throat> and actually I should speak to an aside, if you're a note taker today, I'm probably going to frustrate you a little bit. We're going to go on a little bit of a tour. Uh, so if, you need, if you're one of those that needs to get every single one, you might want to watch it afterwards. But the ones that we really want to focus on, we'll read. But the, thing that, the first thing that I want to really point out here in this particular portion of Scripture is Peter says that salvation is in no one else. He doesn't say in nothing else. He says in no one else. And so the question that we're going to explore today and we're going to go through and hopefully come to a, a, a very strong conclusion in the end is why? Why is there salvation in no one else, in no other name under heaven but Christ alone? And so to answer that question, we need to start at the beginning with the doctrine of man. And so you'll recall that in Genesis 3, it recounts the fall of mankind and the introduction of sin into the, into the world. And so the three things that were struck at there, the three truths that were struck at by Satan and then Eve herself, the first one was what is true? And Satan goes after that particular question by saying, you shall not surely die. And secondly, he goes after what is right. He tempts her by saying that to eat of the fruit will be to be like God. And she looks at it, and it's good for food, and, desire, and it's desires to make one wise. And then finally, Eve struggles with a particular question. Am I creature, or am I God? Am I the one who is to be obedient to the master, 
Or am I a God unto myself to make my own rules and my own laws and the way that I want to be? And so this, of course, as we, as we all know, brought sin into the world and brought the curse of sin to mankind that we, we battle to this day and will until we, we reach heaven. And so we see David describe this in Psalm 51 when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's certainly speaking of himself, but in, in, by extension, all of mankind. And we discussed this in our theology class uh, a number of months back, um, that mankind is born into sin. And we struggle with that, and we are dead in our sins and trespasses, uh, which is what we'll read here in Ephesians chapter 2. And so Ephesians chapter 2 is our next stop for this, in that mankind is dead in their sin and trespasses. And it says in in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the rest but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our wrongdoings made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the boundless riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus and so we see that even just in our very nature, it says in our nature, we were children of wrath. And Jesus goes on in John 8 to talk about everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. In John 15, he says that apart from me, you can do nothing. And in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews speaks of without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so this is the state that we find ourselves in as unbelievers. And I would challenge you, if any of you watching, anybody here, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not bowed your knee to the King and been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, this is the condition that you find yourself in. Whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, this is where you are. Not because I say it, but because the Holy Scriptures say it. And lest we believe that we can reason our way into this understanding, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse, starting in verse th- 13, excuse me. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural person or an unsaved person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the one who is spiritual discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
And so we see that the beginning, what, what the Word talks about throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Christ and Christ alone is what brings us out of this death. Is the what br- is who, not what, who brings us out of the nature of wrath that we find ourselves in as sinners. And again, lest we think that we can come to this, we can wait time after time after time, month after month, year after year, and then we're old and gray and we've had our fun on this earth and we'll just make the choice in the end before we die. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. You will not come of your own accord. You will come when the Father draws you. We cannot approach the throne of grace on our own terms. We approach on His terms. And so this is the, this is the particular um, situation that we as people find ourselves in. And so how did God deal with this? Well, in the beginning, He, he put in place the old covenant of obedience. Or you might have heard it, the law. And we see it as a foreshadow of Christ in Exodus 12 where God is about to bring the, the Israelites out of Egypt. And he is about to send the death angel to take the firstborn of everyone who does not belong to him. And he commands the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and spread it on the mantle of the doorpost of their homes so that when the death angel comes, the death angel would pass over that particular house. And that particular um, event is what was being or is being celebrated at the feast of Passover. And so we see in Deuteronomy and Leviticus the Old Covenant and the law established. And the question is, throughout all of the sacrificial system, throughout all of the things that were done in the Old Testament, does that system save? And so we go to Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, where it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Or we see in Romans 3, where Paul says, By the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And what we see is that throughout all of this Old Testament, it was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that was going to take place on the cross by Christ Himself. And we see in Genesis 3 that this foreshadowing is is begun where it talks about the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we see in Micah 5 that the Savior will come from Bethlehem. We see in Psalm 72 that the kings will bring gifts. 2 Samuel 7, raising up from the offspring of David a king who will establish his kingdom forever. And then the main one, Isaiah chapter 53. If you have not read that recently, I recommend you read it today. It's not all that long, but I'll just read three verses out of it. It says, however, it was our sickness that he bore himself and our pains that he carried. 
Yet we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to, be, to fall on him. And so we see this prophecy that the, the, of Christ as he would come into the future. And when he came, we see him come as both truly human and truly God. And he was truly human, we see in Matthew 1, where he is born of a virgin. In Hebrews 4, he was tempted. It describes him being tempted, I should say, as we are yet without sin. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin and no deceit was in him. And we see when Jesus is tempted by Satan himself, that this is a parallel temptation to what, was, to what Adam and Eve experienced. Except, say, uh, excuse me, Jesus' temptation was significantly more difficult. And it was more difficult in a number of ways. He had spent 40 days without food, on the brink of death, of starvation. And he was tempted in that way with food. He was alone. He did not have the companionship that Adam and Eve had e with each other. He was offered exaltation, just as Eve was offered, to be like God. But he was offered the exaltation of the world. He was tempted to disobey a specific directive of God. And yet he bore this temptation without sin. And so when we say that Christ was tempted in every way that we were, he was actually tempted in much more significant ways by Satan himself. And so we see that in his true humanity, he qualified as the true sacrifice for humanity on the cross. But not only that, he was truly God. In John chapter 1, it refers to him as the Word. And the Greek word used there is logos. And the, where we get the word logic, where we get uh, the word the, the, for the suffix of all the ologies, the biology, anthropology, all the different studies of things. But what it specifically means here is that Christ is the divine expression of the Father. He is the perfect divine expression. When, when, that, when we use that word, the word. In Philippians 2, it talks about that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. And we see in Colossians 2, verses 8 uh, through 10, Paul is giving a direction here that we should all listen to, but certainly it speaks of, of, of who Jesus was as well. He says, See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition. Sound familiar? In accordance with the elementary pr principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. For in Him all all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over every ruler and authority. And so, taking these two together, Jesus being both truly man and truly God, 
He qualified as the perfect sacrifice for the atonement of our sin. He qualified as the perfect lamb, unblemished, as a human. But yet he was also truly God in order to be able to bear the full measure of the wrath of God for our sin. No mere human could have ever done that. But Christ being both truly human and truly God could satisfy both conditions. And so out of that we see that because of, as Romans 1 talks about, the full measure of the wrath of God will be revealed against all unrighteousness. And because Adam imputed to us by his sin, death, Christ, as discussed in Romans 5, imputed to us righteousness. And we see in Romans 3 that we've already mentioned that Christ is our redemption. He is the propitiation, right? That big, long, churchy word that means the satisfaction. It's the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Christ is that propitiation. Because of the matchless things that Christ did on the cross, we now can go to Romans 1 and celebrate as believers that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to pause for just a second and go back to those of you who may be watching or who, who are here. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you cannot claim that promise. And we are here together, worshiping, speaking, proclaiming the Word of God to worship Him and honor His name, but also to deliver to you that message which was once delivered to us. To be brought to a point where there is now no condemnation for me, not because of my good works, not because of my worth, not because of anything of me, but simply because of Christ and what He has done on the cross. And what he did on the cross, 2 Corinthians 2 speaks about, he says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So now what has, what has Christ has done this on the cross? And we look back to that for our salvation, no question. But the one thing that I want to maybe help us correct is that we, we speak many times about the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Present the gospel. Deliver the gospel. And I think we shorten our understanding of the gospel. And we sometimes, maybe without thinking, indicate that the gospel ends at salvation. The good news of Christ is not simply our salvation though it is absolutely that. The gospel, the good news of Christ, extends for eternity. Salvation is just the beginning of the good news for the believer. It's just the beginning of our enjoyment of Christ forever. And so, how does Christ serve us now. He continues to serve us. Even as the matchless king that he is, he continues to serve us in his love for us. John Calvin spoke of Christ as 
three different things. That he was prophet and not as the Old Testament prophets. He was the perfect prophet in that he brought the perfect word of God. And certainly not as Islam describes him as merely a prophet. But he was the logos as we, as we mentioned earlier. He was the perfect divine expression. He serves now as priest. If you want to look and see uh, how Jesus serves us now as, as the great high priest, I reference you to, to, or refer you, sorry, to Hebrews chapter 9. That he is the sacrifice for many. Once a year, the, great, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and would present a sacrifice for the nation. And Hebrews 9 describes Jesus as the great high priest who not only offers the perfect sacrifice for us and for our sin, but is himself the sacrifice. So he provided it and he is the sacrifice at the same time. And it is through his sacrifice that we as believers have the unimaginable privilege of access to the throne room of the Father. When we've prayed this morning, when we prayed before um, the service, when we pray on a daily basis, we have access to the throne of God, not based on us for, for sure, but based solely on the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we see now in Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 and 1 Timothy 2 how He now intercedes for us. He intercedes for us to the Father. And when the Father looks at us, He sees the finished work of Christ on the believer number of weeks ago, we, we, in our theology class, we went through uh, the concept of justification, where we are declared not guilty by the judge. Not because we really are not guilty. We are really actually very guilty. But because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we now stand before a holy God, not simply declared not guilty, but declared righteous. Before God Himself, can we imagine that? Before God Himself, the author of righteousness, we will one day bow before Him with our face on the ground or whatever it is, wherever heaven, whatever heaven is. If there is such thing as a ground there, it says there's streets paved with gold, so I'm assuming that's some sort of ground. We will have our face before Him. And I can only imagine that we will be praising Him for the not guilty verdict and the righteousness that we have been given. Neither of which did we deserve. But because of His grace and His mercy has He decided to give this to us as believers. And so He continues to intercede for us. He continues to do the work of the great high priest and the intercessor. Which is why we need no priest. He is the great high priest. And so the final way that we want to discuss this morning of Christ 
and the role that he plays in this world and this universe is the soon coming king. And I would direct your attention if you want to turn there. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. I have a number of favorite passages in the Bible, but this one is probably chief among them. And here we see the image of the returning king. He came first as Savior. He came first as sacrificial lamb. He was not weak. He was not that doughy-eyed Jesus we see in paintings from the Renaissance. He was God incarnate. He was the master. He was the king. But he came with a purpose. And that purpose was to be the sacrifice. But here we see him on the other side of the coin. We see him as the coming king. And starting in verse 11, he said, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church will refer back to Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in no one else. How could there be? How could there be salvation in anything else but Christ and Christ alone? The situation we find ourselves in as sinners, that which is necessary to satisfy the Father, and Christ being the one and only sacrifice who could qualify to satisfy. How could there be salvation in anything else? And so chapter, excuse me, verse 12 in chapter 4 continues on. And he says, so we focus rightly, sorry I got confused there. We focus rightly on the exclusivity of Christ. And it is exclusive. There is not salvation by anything else. It isn't grace plus, faith plus, Christ plus, something else. It is simply salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I want to focus on the last half of verse 12 here. Again, Acts 4, verse 12. And it says, For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, there, there is no option. There is no plan B. There's nothing else. 
It says we must be saved. And so if you sit here today or you're watching online, and as we discussed earlier, you have not died to your old self, been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and become a new creation, as 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and come out of the death in sin, as Ephesians 2 talks about, and been made alive to Christ then you stand before a holy God as those whom our Lord describes in Matthew 7 as having, having never been known by God. And He commands them to depart from Him. May I say that your good deeds, your good intentions will not help you. Your love and kindness displayed to others will not save you. Your church involvement and worldly achievements will not impress the Lord of glory. How could they? For those of you who will meet Him as friend at His coming <clears throat> or at your death. Sorry, I get choked up every time I think about Christ coming. I want it. I can't wait. My dad and I speak of this all the time. Take these words as encouragement. In this world which offers no hope. There is no hope in this world, ladies and gentlemen. The hope is in Christ and Christ alone. For those of you who are His, He is the hope. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Seek Him and Him alone in these times. Your strength, your peace, and your very salvation comes from nothing and no one else. So we started with the words of Peter in Acts chapter 4. And we'll close with them as well. So in John 6, Jesus is explaining to His disciples, not just the twelve, it was a broader broader group, that He is the bread of life. And many of the Jews were challenging Jesus, and many of the disciples actually left because of the difficult things that Jesus was saying. And so we find in John chapter 6, verse 67, or beginning in 67, Peter saying something that, that, that we should all live by. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to leave also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have already believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, I pray we have honored your name. Lord Jesus, I pray that we have given you the glory that only you deserve. Your name is matchless. Your achievements are matchless. And we worship you for them. We worship you for you. Father God, for all those who would be within this hearing, 
who are not yours. Father, I pray your spirit would move, you would convict them, and you would bring them to yourself. For those of us who belong to you, who will meet you as friend, God, we worship you. We bow willingly at your feet to give you all glory, all honor, and all praise. It's in your son's holy and awesome name we pray. Amen.